0: Zoo. It's always a, a neat opportunity to go in and to watch the different animals interact and, and to learn about them. We had the opportunity uh, when we came to, to the gorilla area to see an orangutan. It was sitting there in front of the glass with its back against the glass and had a, a blanket, a, a shawl pulled up over it, hiding its face. It turned right as our little girl. Uh, inched up closer to get a better view, it turned and looked right at her, and and just to watch her face light up was an awesome sight. But you know, one of the most interesting parts about visiting zoos and aquariums and different things, not only because I'm a nerd and and love animal life, I grew up on a farm, for crying out loud, I love that kind of life and, and learning about these animals, but zoos and aquariums have done something that we often forget. They have made an awareness to us about the animal world and how to labor to, to preserve animal life. So many cultures around the world are trying to uh, cause more and more extinction of, of some of these species. But the zoo and aquarium allow us to, to meet these animals face-to-face and have to, to see what they're like and, and begin to think, is everything we pursue in causing their extinction worth it? We seek them, along with zoologists, to preserve these animals and their natural habitats as we become more and more aware. The zoos help us in that preservation. But you know, we're not here to talk about zoos and preserving animals. We're here to talk about a different kind of preservation, namely a God who knows how to preserve His people. And that's what we're going to see as we open up to the book of Exodus in chapter 8, beginning in verse 20 this morning. Because this is a longer section of text, we're not going to take time this morning to read it. I hope you've uh, read ahead. If you've not, go ahead and reread that section of text this week, 820 through 1029. It will be worth your time, and hopefully you will see the things that uh, I will draw out this morning in the text. But over, over the last five weeks, we have been, including this week, the last four weeks, and five this week, We're in our fifth Sunday of studying the book of Exodus. We're seeing here how God has remembered his covenant, how he has heard the cry of his people, and how he has stooped down to reveal himself to Moses and to deliver them from the hand of Pharaoh, from the land of Egypt, to bring them into the promised land because he has remembered his covenant. And that's where we pick up this morning. We pick up in seeing... 820 through 1029, this main idea, I think. Here's the main idea. The Lord knows how to preserve His people and bring them to Himself. It's there on the screen, but let me repeat that. The Lord knows how to preserve His people and bring them to Himself. And we're going to look at this in three points this morning. Point number one, He preserves His people preserves us by setting us apart. Point number two, he preserves us by relentlessly pursuing us. And point number three, he preserves us by proving he alone is the Lord. Let's look at point number one, he preserves us by setting apart. As the fourth plague begins, it the Lord picks right up where he left off after the first three plagues he begins his all-out assault on Pharaoh in showing exactly who he is but we see for the first time it made explicit that there's a distinguishment between God's people and the people of Egypt It may be implicit in the other three that they were separated and spared but we see it explicitly stated here in Exodus 820. Look at with me at 8.21 and 8.22. It says here, Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people. And into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with the swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. But it doesn't stop here. It goes on again in in Exodus 9, 3 and 4. We go on to read... Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the fox. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. But then we also see this again in Exodus 9.26. It goes on to say here, Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel Israel were, was there no hell? And then once more in 10.23, we read the following. It says there, They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Each of these plagues, as the world keeps giving blow after blow to the Egyptians, he makes a distinguishment with his people. He sets them Apart, he preserves them in this he preserves them though not because israel has done everything right for crying out loud israel doubted the moment that pharaoh began to press further against them they began to doubt look at what you've done Moses. you made a steep before pharaoh it wasn't because they they had always believed they had adhered hear, and that's what began to set them apart Moses himself, as the messenger of God, though he saw God come to him in a burning bush, began to doubt God as he was being ridiculed by his own. He began to doubt. So it was not because of their anything they've done. They have every reason for God to forgive them. But they're set apart because God remembers His covenant and because He has called them His people. He's called them His people. And we see the distinguishment in their faith and their trust compared to that of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. It's not a call to have perfect faith in the sense of getting everything right, but it is a call to trust. But let me back up for a moment here as we consider the ways in which the people of Israel failed to be set apart. They failed to be set apart in the fact that they did not believe God. Look with me back in Exodus 8. There in verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. The thing that distinguishes Pharaoh and the people of Egypt is they do not want to serve Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. They want to serve their own gods, and they don't even want to let the Israelites go and serve them. Each of these we need to see. But more importantly, we need to see that as God sets His people apart, the Egyptians are filled with compromise. They compromise. That's why they're not set apart. We see this in 825 here as well. It goes on to say there in Exodus 825. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to to your God within the land. There's a problem with this. Notice what Moses follows up in 8.26, he says, but Moses said it would not be right to do so, for the offering we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Pharaoh's fine. All of a sudden now, here, go out and and offer sacrifices, but you have to do it within our land, within our terms. And by the way, you might die because our people can't stand your offerings. They can't stand the idea of you offering bulls. They can't stand the idea of you offering these animal sacrifices that they believe are God's. It would kind of be like going before a Hindu temple and and slaughtering a cow before them. They're going to rise up and be mad and furious. That's what is going to be done if they offer these sacrifices. Not to mention, that's not what the Lord has called them to do. He has called them to go on a three-day journey and go out and offer these offerings. Pharaoh wants them to, to compromise, but it doesn't stop here in 8.26. Drop down to, to Exodus 10, verses 7-11. through 11. Here in Exodus 10, 7-11, through 11, we read this. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you, if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go with the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Again, Pharaoh seeks to compromise. Here, how about only a small bit of you go instead of the whole of you? Your little ones have to stay behind, but you you men can go. Sisters, how would you feel if you were told you couldn't go and worship the Lord, your God? That's what Pharaoh's saying here. He, he's allowing the men to go, but not the women, not the children. He compromises again. But he does this again down in 10:24 and 25. We see it here. In 10:24 it says, then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only oh, let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Over and over and over again. Pharaoh is trying to, to strike a deal with them. Here, I'll let you go this far. It's kind of like when, when you buy that house and you have to negotiate with the buyers and sellers, you have to go back and forth. What are you willing to compromise and give up? It, it's a back and forth process. That's what Pharaoh is trying to see here. He's wanting us to go back and forth. He's wanting to say, "Okay, Israel, just accept this and and let the deal be done." But we're not going to let you have everything you want. It'd be kind of like a going in and, and buying a hundred year old house, and the, the owner saying, "We'll give it to you at this cost, but we're going to wait the inspection." No inspection on on this 100-year house. It's kind of foolish, isn't it? And yet, how often is that what we do with God when it comes to worshiping Him? We compromise and and give up. This is what the Egyptians wanted. It's the same struggle of our own hearts. We want to compromise the truth of what God has called us to in worship for the sake of relative, being relative, relevant, if I could say the word. For the sake of being relevant, we often compromise what God has called us to in worship. For the sake of trying to draw other people in, we begin to water down the gospel by telling people, you know what, God loves you, but never talk about God's holiness. Brothers and sisters, it's not enough for people to see that God loves, we need to see that God is a holy God and we deserve condemnation before Him. And the fact that He still shows that grace and mercy, despite that, that's hope sinners are one to the gospel. But yet we try to water it down to make it more appealing because we don't want to talk about sin. We're afraid they might get their feelings hurt. Brothers and sisters, if you were won by that cheap gospel, you've not heard the true gospel. The gospel is that we are sinners, and the only way is through the cross, through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, because we're guilty. You've heard me say it before. I try to tell people when they visit a church, if you're here looking for the perfect church, you've come to the wrong place. Because we're not here because we have it all together. We're not here because we're perfect. We're here because we desperately need Jesus. That's not some catch line. It's the reality of the truth. We need Jesus. We need that mercy. And yes, how often do we water that news down? to make it more appealing and think we can win more if we water it down. If we're brimstone and preaching of hell and sin that somehow people aren't going to believe, brothers and sisters, the very fact is we all needed that same message. We needed to hear we are sinners. We needed to hear we fall short of the glory of God and that Christ came to rescue us despite that. That's why the Gospel must start with God as Creator and our sinful fall before people can ever understand the beauty of the Gospel. We must not compromise it. But we also do this in our, our corporate worship gatherings. We, we begin to compromise the truth and, and what does it look like together as the body of Christ? I think we're held here in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. It, it gives us exactly what corporate worship is. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the very primary purpose of it, as we gather, is to encourage one another in our mutual faith in Jesus. We're together to encourage one another, building one another up as we gather but how, how, how is this done? Well, we see it scattered throughout Scripture. In, in 2 Timothy 4, 2, it says, Preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. One of the primary means is through the preaching of the Word. We see the apostles make this evident in Acts 6, as they, they get deacons raised up in order to go and serve so that they can focus on the preaching of the Word and prayer. The preaching of the Word is primary. That's one reason as Baptist, as I told uh, the KBA when I I did the message a, a month or so ago, one of the reasons as Baptist we have a pulpit right here in the center is not just so the preacher can be primary, it's because the Word goes forth from the center. You ever thought about that, brothers and sisters? There's a reason to it. It's not just so the people can stare at the preacher. It's because we want to make the word center. It's what we see in Ezra and Nehemiah as they read the law to the people. The people actually would have stood and heard the law read for hours. Imagine standing the whole time and as read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's what would have taken place in Ezra and Nehemiah. The word is center. That's why. We preach the Word. But it's not just this that we see as primary as we gather. We, we see in, in Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you, richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with faithfulness in your hearts to God. Brothers and sisters, have we considered the way Scripture actually calls us to worship corporately? And if we haven't considered how to worship God corporately together as the body of Christ, how in the world are we to do it individually? Worshiping God isn't left for us to compromise. God has given us things in His Word of what it means to worship Him. How many of you have ever thought of the idea of having various prayers of confession within your own individual times? The reason we put a confession of prayers of confession that Mark prayed for us this morning is to draw our attention to the need of that what we do publicly and corporately is is to overflow into our individual disciplines of, of spiritual discipline, so that we can carry those over into our private lives and then that they can be made visible to the world one of the I'm convinced that we have shallow spiritual disciplines because we've modeled shallow disciplines from the pulpit. We come in, sing a few songs, we come in and, and hear a short heavy message, and then wonder why we're left unchanged by the power of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to worship him on our right means because it's about knowing him, that carrying over our world to whom he is. We can't rightly worship the one we don't know. We need to see that those that stood against the people of God failed to worship God because they compromised the truths of God. And we can't let that happen to us as believers. We must understand the depth of who our God is and what He's called to us or called us to do. Let Scripture inform our worship. Let Scripture teach us what it means to actually worship Yahweh. The Lord. Because He does reveal to us. These are just some. We'd be here two days if we looked at all the ways Scripture teaches us how to worship God. But see, we must worship Him.
1: The other way that the people of
0: Egypt were, were not set apart was that they had false repentance. They had false confession of sin. We see this throughout, uh, beginning in 927, we see this. Look with me in Exodus nine twenty seven. It says here, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. And then in, in 28 it goes on, Plead with the Lord, for there has been mouth of God's thunder in hell. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Of course, drop down to... to Uh, 935. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he, he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. He confessed sin, but it didn't change anything. The moment the hell had stopped, he relented of his promise. He did not truly repent to the Lord. But it's not just seen there. It is again in 935, we read this. Or, sorry, I just read 935. Uh, we, we see this again in, in 10, 16, and 17. It says, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. Please, only this once and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. But again, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Why? Because of this in 920 and 21, we read this. Or sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. We we see them compromise of this truth. We see them not have true repentance. Even the people would, would attempt to repent, attempt to fear. In, in 920 and 21, we read this. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So some began to, to actually fear God and began to act upon that as He promises these coming plagues. So they go and hide their servants. They go and hide their livestock in order so that they might be spared. But that didn't lead them to true repentance. It did not lead them to turning away and trusting in God. And we see this in in 9.17 with Pharaoh's own heart first, and then with the people. In 9.17 it says, You are still exalting yourselves, talking to Pharaoh, against my people and will not let them go. So Pharaoh still wants to exalt himself. That's why he's not truly repentant. And then with the people, it also says here in 10.3, So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourselves before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Our hearts still are hardened. Our hearts are hardened to sin. They're not truly repentant. Friends, brothers, sisters, True repentance is not merely feeling sorry because you got caught. True repentance is not just, get me out of this situation, and I promise I'll never do it again, knowing good and well your heart is not there yet. True repentance is not simply beginning to be fearful of God. It's part of it. But true repentance is a truly turning from the things of our own wicked hearts to God. God. From allegiance to sin and that ultimately of Satan to King Jesus. Resting in Him and allowing Him to call the shots. Brothers and sisters, we are not truly repentant if we're still calling the shots. There's only one who calls the shots and that's the King Himself. Who is your King? Are you your own little King or is it King Jesus? Who's calling the shots in your life? We don't have a repentant heart if it's still all about us and what we deem right. It's about the king and submitting to him. That's what Pharaoh lacked. That's what the Egyptians lacked. They did not see the Lord Almighty as the king of kings, let alone would they dare even see his son as the king who he bestowed the authority to. That's not true repentance we see true repentance though in the heart of Moses as oppression and opposition increased Moses began to doubt in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Exodus but notice each of these times what what's going on he hears the word of the Lord and he goes he does what the Lord has called him to look at verse uh, chapter 9 verse 30 with me here though I think this is the most clear statement Moses has repented. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Moses hears Pharaoh respond. He knows what the Lord has called him to already. He doesn't need to go back to the Lord and say, Lord, Pharaoh's not, he, he said he's going to let us go. But you have already told me he's going to harden his heart, that there's a purpose in this. So Moses boldly speaks, showing that now he is trusting in God, he is believing in his word, and he is acting upon that belief, and as he gives counsel. That's true repentance. It changes us. It transforms us. It doesn't leave us where we are. It constantly is changing us, conforming us more to the image of God. our King. Brothers and sisters, if you're where you were when you first began, you might want to question whether or not you have actually repented of sin. Repentance always leads to transformation. It always leads to change. It's slow, but it leads to change. We need to ask ourselves, are we genuinely repentance of sin or have we falsely repented like that of Pharaoh and that of the Egyptians where we merely want out of the judgment there's a reason so many false professions take face take place because we scare them into making a proclamation we tell them if you don't believe right now you're going to die and go to hell well while that's true They don't see the beauty of King Jesus. They don't see the need to to actually give allegiance to him as king. That's not sharing the gospel, just trying to scare somebody into making a decision and a profession of faith. And if we can just get them to walk the aisle and baptize, it's one of the other reasons we compromise, because we don't know what true repentance is. People come forward because they're scared scared to die and go to hell, but they don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand the gospel. We need to see true repentance leads to change because it's a change of the allegiance of our hearts. Do we have that change? God help us to. But again, this true repentance isn't instantaneous. It's slow-moving, but it should be visible. And that's where we're going to turn in our second point of how God preserves us. God preserves us by setting us apart in who we are in Christ. He sets us apart by leading us to that true faith and true repentance. But then He preserves us in our second point by relentlessly pursuing us. God relentlessly pursues us. And the first three plagues and four signs have come and gone. A staff turned into a, a serpent. A, the Nile turned to blood. Frogs coming upon the land. Gnats coming upon the land. They all seemed minor. In it. They're, they're significant, but they're minor in the sense of, of the impact upon the people of Egypt. Sure, they've got to dig a well. Sure, they're annoyed by the gnats. Sure, they're annoyed by the frogs. But no death has come to them. As the flies come upon them in the fourth plague, more annoyance seems to come in this second round of plagues. But about plague five, things begin to intensify. Because no longer is it mere annoyance to the people. No longer is God just saying, Look, I'm, I'm over your gods. So I'm going to annoy the heck out of you here. Drive you insane. Now I'm going to put sores on you. Through boils. Or through death of livestock and then boils. So, so death comes to the livestock here in the fifth play. In the sixth play, boils come upon the people themselves. Death begins to come on those that are not set apart by God. The animals die. These boils come upon causing the, these brutal sores. Uh, it's, it's skin irritation. If you've never had skin messed with you, it's painful sometimes. I, I struggle with eczema and different things. It's painful at times. But these boils, according to Brown Driver uh, Briggs, the, the leading Hebrew lexicon, it says that they are skin sores or skin eruptions is one way of describing it. These eruptions have burst over the people. They've burst over the, the magicians themselves. It caused them painful sores. And they can't even heal them. The magicians cannot heal the people because they themselves are struck, and showing that they are unable to do this. The people are left hurting as they see God's wrath coming against them. But it just intensifies more. In the seventh plague, the hell falls upon them. Any man or beast or crop out in the field, out in the open, is taken. The hell destroys it, crippling them. And then in the eighth plague, the locusts come, and whatever wasn't destroyed by hell is now destroyed by these locusts. And then darkness comes upon them. All because the people have not repented, they are not set apart, and yet God pursues His own people through this. He doesn't let up. No matter how hard the Egyptians object, no matter how hard they try to resist, God doesn't let up. He keeps pouring on the plague, He keeps landing the blows against them so that the people may see He is God. And that He will not stop. He will not rest until He brings His people out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. God does not stop. And brothers and sisters, the same is promised to us who have truly placed our faith in Christ. That God will not stop. He will not let up until He brings us safely home. In Romans 6.22 we read, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. one 1.6 says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then in, in John 17 and verses 13 and through 19 we read, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The Lord promises to keep those that are His, to sanctify them. That is the very heart of Jesus' prayer, to make the people of God like Jesus Himself to conform them and bring them to the day of completion. Romans 8 is all about that. It would encourage each of you to take time to to read Romans 8 this afternoon because it's all about, therefore, there is now no condemnation. He who began a good work will complete it. He's going to not only justify you, but he's going to sanctify you, and then he's going to lead you to glorification when sin is completely removed as you enter his presence. That's what God has promised to do. As he moves heaven and earth in order to bring us to himself in completing the work he began. Brothers and sisters, we can rest in the fact that God will preserve his people. It may not be easy. It's often going to look through the means of discipline. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 says, He shapes us so that we may walk in the ways that we are called to. Brothers and sisters, sometimes this is done through one another. Sometimes the Lord puts people in our lives that will call us out in our own sin and call us to repent of it because they care about us. Other times this is, is done through the Lord disciplining us and taking us through trials and taking everything we try to lean on for comfort and refuge away from us so that we're thrown on our face and forced to depend on Him alone, to rest in Him alone. The Lord disciplines us, though, as a loving Father. Just as any loving father is going to go and swat their little child's hand from touching an electric outlet because they don't want him to be electrocuted, how much more is the father going to lovingly discipline us because he will not lose us. He disciplines us to draw us more to himself. Brothers and sisters, this is the lengths our God will go to preserve us. He will discipline us. He will keep us. He will sanctify us because of our faith in Christ. Because we have already been set apart by placing our faith and our trust in Jesus. And because of that, He will preserve us in that. But not only will He preserve us by setting us apart, not only will He preserve us by keeping us, He will preserve us by proving He alone is the Lord. He alone is the Lord. Turn with me to Exodus 10 verses 1 through 2. Exodus 10, 1 through 2. It says here in the word of the Lord, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. That I am the Lord. I'm doing these things so that you, Israel, my people may know that I am the Lord. The Lord preserves us by making Himself known to us. Brothers and sisters, if, if God makes Himself known to us, that He and He alone is the one and true God, that there is no other than we're forced to see our desperate need in depending upon Him, we're kept from going to pursue other gods of this world. We're kept from pursuing and chasing after idols of our own heart and doing making. But we must see that He alone is God. And He has done that through these mighty acts of old. Over and over again, these mighty acts will be reminded to the people of Israel throughout their journey, saying, remember what I've done. Remember these acts of old. How I delivered you. How I brought you out of Egypt. Remember how you wandered in the wilderness and your shoes and your clothes didn't wear out. How you did not hunger. Because I provided God shows himself to be the only true God, and it's for our sake. That's one of his many ways of kindness to us in how he preserves us, by proving again that he alone is God. We see that in creation. We see that in his mighty acts of old. There is none like him, and we would do well to continue to grow, to know him because this is the God who preserves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning for the opportunity we have had